Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Thanks for listening. Brendan here with Mark as usual. Episode 284, Thursday, March the 2nd, 2023. Earth to Mark, are you there? I'm here, Brendan. I'm here in the heat. It crikeys, it's muggy at the moment where I am. Yes, I think we're sort of opposites at the minute because we've had a bit of a cooler spell and um, we've just passed. We just finished officially. Summer has finished, hasn't it, in Australia, in the Southern Hemisphere, um, because it is March, Mark, and we we didn't have much of a really severe hot spell, which we often have down here in Melbourne, which was great. We had two or three episodes of three or four days in a row where we had some a bit of heat, but nothing dramatic and touch wood, no bushfires this season, Mark. So, um, yeah, and um, it's cool this week, Mark. We've got a few cool days and I think our humidity is about 80% less than what you are right <laughs> yeah, It is very muggy at the moment. There is a little bit of um, breeze around, which makes it immensely more tolerable. Um, now, what about, have you heard about, I know you're not working officially vet wise up there mark um have you heard about how how bad things are or not with with some of the sort of tropical diseases that dogs and cats etc may get up there you know have you had an experience or or family or friends or 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 acquaintances up there that have had for instance a, a dog or a cat that's had a wound that takes forever to heal because of the humidity or any of the vector borne diseases heartworm those sorts of things there is an act it's it's fascinating it's a good such a good question to ask because um i the you know the natural things that you would expect ticks and and uh um heartworm disease they're they're they don't seem to be um certainly too much of a of a problem um uh, there's no paralysis ticks here where i am um but there are um, brown dog ticks and ehrlichiosis is the you know there literally is a, a health a public health warning at the moment about uh, ehrlichiosis in dogs um, that's going through the local communities up here so yeah it is it's sort of amazing to be in uh, in you know all those places we learnt about um, as students that had strange diseases and and processes to deal with them, this is one of them, and it's happening right around me. So yeah, it is fascinating, and it is fascinating that it's not like I said. I, I thought tick paralysis would be overwhelming. I thought um, uh, um, uh, a whole bunch of other diseases would be problematic, but um, but at the moment, ehrlichiosis is the one that's really got everyone talking up here. Ah, and the, one of the reasons I asked is I know you mentioned to me at one stage that you slap on heaps of the of the toxic um, insect repellent. Indeed. <laughs> yes, every time you sort of head out because yes. um, otherwise you're you're swamped. Um, and I presume are you one of these people? I I certainly are, Mark. Who if there's one mozzie around, it will head over to me, Mark. I'm I'm attracted to the mozzies, or the mozzies are attracted to me, I should say. It's 
it's definitely not as bad as I thought it would be. I thought there'd be like literally swarms of them and uh, and uh, I have had a couple of times where I've forgotten to take the full armament of insect protection into a um, you know a little artificial hide I've made up um, and uh, been tagged a little bit but um, but yeah it hasn't been all that that bad uh, um, as long as you um, sort of cover up a fair bit and whack a bit of repellent on and um, have one of those um, smoky insect repellent candle devices. Um, it's really not too bad. The little mosquito coils, are they still around, Mark? Those oh, yeah. Normal, yep. Those yep. little um, escargots, those little um, <laughs> yeah, circular little ones. Ah, I think they're like pyrethrum based, aren't they? Those or not? I've got no, no idea what's in them. I, I just. Um, you just they light them up. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, just light them up. Burn them up. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I think with that, Mark, enough weather talk. We might jump into our news story, and it's a combination news story. This one I thought we'd go through together, Mark. We can alternate with it. And it was from The Guardian What Happens When Humans Meddle with Nature? And it talks about seven ways in which our destruction of the natural world has led to deadly outcomes. And the first one, Mark, I'll take. Um, in, as India vultures decline, the numbers of rabies cases have risen, Mark. In the early 1990s, vultures across India started dying and they worked out that it was because of diclofenac, Mark, mm -hmm. um, routinely given to cattle in Southeast Asia at the time and the vultures fed on the carcasses of cows and were poisoned, Mark. Um, so the vault, three vulture species fell by more than 97%. So pretty amazing. Um, so as the vulture populations crashed, cow carcasses started piling up and the numbers of rats and wild dogs surged and the dogs became the main scavengers at dumps previously used by the vultures and that they estimated over... Between 1992 and 2003, dogs increased by 7 million and the number of dogs bite sword and rabies infections increased as well, Mark, causing tens of thousands of people to die each year. 2006, diclofenac was banned and vulture populations have slowly started to recover. There we go, Mark. It is, the, it is the dominoes, isn't it? And this, the, my yes. uh, number two is a similar uh, story of dominoes. In the late 1950s, Mao Zedong, uh, in an attempt to rapidly industrialise China through the Great Leap Forward, uh, one arm of that process was uh, the Four Pests campaign, where they... Uh, targeted mosquitoes, rats, flies, and sparrows. He ordered all the country's sparrows be killed because he thought they were feeding on rice and grains and reducing the amount that people could eat. Um, and so, yeah, in typical efficient fashion, the Chinese um, smashed their eggs and banged pots so they would fall away and uh, fly away and uh, not sit on their eggs. And sparrows were virtually driven to extinction in mainland China. Uh, but what the officials didn't realise is that while sparrows eat a little bit of grain, um, the bulk of their diet is insects. And after the mass killing, the mass uh, uh, um, um, extermination, <laughs> the uh, yeah, birdicide, avicide, there was a, an eruption of insects, which 
destroyed the country's cop. So bizarrely, the attempt to increase the amount of uh, seed available to humans resulted in a catastrophic um, dump, uh, drop in the amount of food. And this in turn uh, is estimated to have led to the death of about 45 million people. No, no, no small... Um, uh, error in judgment that, Brendan, 45 million people. Dull. Well, more than <laughs> dull, I think. Uh, that is that is depressing, isn't it? Well, my one's not much better, Mark, um, as far as um, things going wrong. Deadly frog fungus, and this one's a bit more um, addresses sort of a veterinary sort of slant, doesn't it, Mark? The chitrid fungus um, rips through Panama and Costa Rica from the 1980s to the mid-1990s leading to what some people estimate is up to 90 species as species of amphibians becoming extinct and it was described as the greatest loss of biodiversity attributed to a disease but interestingly enough there was a massive spike in malaria cases in central america mark as the mosquitoes thrived probably because there were no frogs, salamanders, and other amphibians to prey on their eggs. So at its peak, there was a five-fold increase in malaria cases. There you go, Mark. The domino effect again, as you, as you mentioned at the start. Well, my next one is, once again, a domino, things falling over. Um, in 2004, the Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami um, killed a, a huge number of people, particularly through Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India and Thailand. Um, but the key thing about that is that um, each of those countries had suffered a significant decline in mangrove cover, which um, the Environmental Justice Foundation suggests that um, the one of the main consequences of those trees uh, being destroyed was that uh, the tsunami penetrated much farther inland and killed many, many more people and uh, aggravated the destruction of homes and likelihoods. Um, and, uh, and, of course, it's no surprise to our listeners, I'll bet, that mangrove forests play a huge role um, in protecting um, land uh, more generally, but specifically human lives and property in those areas that might be affected by uh, uh, extreme weather events and tsunamis. Um, and it's a bit depressing because I think here in Australia, we, we have had the same sort of loss. So let's hope we're not affected by anything like that before we can uh, have some degree of recovery of our mangrove forests. Yes. Well, Let's continue with the good news, Mark. Bees are disappearing, and in southwest China, especially the widespread use of pesticides and habitat destruction has meant that farmers have had to end up artificially pollinating pear and apple trees themselves, Mark. This is fascinating, and it's a little bit labour-intensive, Mark. They use, a, <laughs> they use a paintbrush attached to a long bamboo pole to dab inside each flower and supposedly 30%, Mark, 30% of China's pear trees are artificially pollinated, according to Jeez. one study. And as we know, pollinating insects are vital to food security and three-quarters of 
crops depend on and, and they're crucial for other wildlife, etc. So there we go, Mark. Um, and, and in the U- US, Mark, um, researchers have studied seven crops grown in 13 states and found that five showed evidence the lack of bees is affecting the amount of food that can be grown, which includes the staples like apples and blueberries and cherries, Mark. So... No pies like for the imagine, Americans. Imagine that as a job, Mark, hand-pollinating flowers. Um, God. Yes, I think I'd rather the bees. I'd rather the bees. And pesticides cop another bad rap uh, in that um, there, there does appear to be a lot of evidence uh, from researchers in Brazil um, that found that Ants can be more effective than pesticides at helping farmers produce foods because they are, first of all, better at killing pests, um, but they're um, not so bad at um, killing the, 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 um, the good animals, as it were, the good insects. Pesticides will wipe out um, parasitoid wasps, lacewings, ladybirds, uh, spiders, all of the, the predatory insects as well as the damaging insects. And, um, and so, uh, as we've discovered contemplating some of these, um, that can have untoward effects, you know, undesired effects. The total number of insects may drop precipitously, but the damage may be worse because the predators that would help to control the damaging insects may not be there. So maybe um, biocontrols like ants will be the answer. We hope so, Mark, because it's doom and gloom, isn't it? It is doom and gloom. And the last story is um, similar to the one you had a couple of stories back, Mark. Losing coral reefs leaves coastal properties unprotected like mangroves, Mark. Coral reefs are a natural barrier to waves and storm, and it's thought that they make it likely for waves to break offshore, reducing wave energy by an average 97% by the time they hit land. And it's estimated that around 200 million people in coastal areas around the world depend on the protection of coral reefs, Mark, and that they provide more than, well, around about $2 billion annually in flood protection benefits. And guess what? They're disappearing, Jeez. Mark, from damage, development such as marinas and docks and pollution. Um, so they're being destroyed also by, you know, coral bleaching and the rise in temperatures as well. Um, so it's not good news, Mark. Um, so I don't think we've got much um, else to say about this um, article. Um, the only thing I would say about it, Brendan, quickly, is that, um, that it's interesting that most of these effects are pretty, they might not be entirely predictable but they're pretty direct you know they're sort of one or two degrees away from the action that humans have taken Um, and I would just take the time to point out that oftentimes um, there can be effects that are maybe five or six or more steps away um, and through those steps can be magnified and we're only just sort of some of those things we're only just learning about now so um so it's bad what we know, but it may even be worse what we don't know about some of these uh, these changes. So let's stop. Let's stop right there and talk about something else. Yeah, I'd, I was hoping that you'd have a little positive upspin at the end there, Mark, but no, you're no, down. Yeah. <laughs> Take it down all the way. Well, let's jump into our main topic this week, and I think this is a good one, Mark, so we'll try and keep it 
relatively <laughs> relatively punchy and it is raising young birds so we did cover incubation of eggs in bird eggs in episode 25 mark way back yes. in episode 25 called hatch <laughs> the, the title of that one was so we're not going to cover incubation of eggs so what i want to chat to you about and quiz you about mark is what to do with those those young birds those orphan birds etc that are presented to the vet clinic and and the basics of of what we do with them um, keeping them alive and, and raising them up and and potentially releasing them or, or rehousing or housing them somewhere mark after they after they've um, gone through that initial raising so why do we see them in the practices mark what, how are they presented these 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 young birds well there's there's two big broad categories of uh, young birds that we see there's the uh, wild ones who for whatever reason misadventure of some sort or uh, weather events that uh, might affect the nest that the young birds have been um, uh, compromised their parents no longer are feeding them um, they're not in the nest um, and uh, in an attempt to give them a reasonable chance at life, we might make the decision to hand rear them. Um, and the other group are aviary birds um, that, uh, that possibly the aviculturist is choosing to um, increase the, you know, get his birds to clutch multiple times in a season so he can increase production. Um, and, and one particular topic I'll quickly touch on later on is the uh, hand rearing of, uh, um, of uh, young birds as pets. Um, and there's some pretty, pretty important issues for us to discuss there. Mm, okay. Well, let's, let's jump into it, Mark. So um, what, what, what do you need to start thinking about when you're presented with one of these? Um, let, and let's keep it. Keep it to sort of the basics, I suppose, for, for the most part for this yeah. podcast. For instance, it, it, somebody turns up with one of these youngsters um, to the clinic. Um, what's your first first thoughts? Well, my first thoughts are to have a look at the individual bird and perform a physical examination. Um, many of these birds will be the, um, uh, uh, the altricial birds, the birds that are born naked and... Uh, um, uh, blind and and uh, haven't developed their feathers yet and um, they're often by the time they're presented dehydrated their skin might be uh, um, reddened and uh, turgid and um, and they could be in a lot of trouble so a physical examination you also want to make a little bit of an assessment of the the species that might be involved because that, that was going to be one of my questions mark how how easy is it to detect, determine what the species is? Especially if, say, a member of the public brought a brought a little young, um, even an you know unfeathered or, or partially feathered little youngster in. Um, how do we determine that species? And if we can't, what do you do? Well, it's it's um, it can be it can be very very difficult uh, to know what species it is, and in some instances, even experts with lots and lots of experience will make um, uh, um, will be have difficulty identifying the specific species. Um, there are a number of um, online resources, a number of uh, 
um, of the re rescue and rehabilitation group have uh, online services. So you take a series of photos and send them um, and people will give you an idea. That's probably one of the quicker ways. Um, if you can't, um, then you make a bit of a broad decision about the type of bird and you can often do that by looking at its beak. So you might not be able to tell whether it's a... Uh, um, a crested pigeon or a spotted Indian turtle dove, but you might be able to uh, identify that it's a pigeon of some sort. And then you, once you have that sort of broad family group, you can begin um, rehydration and and likely food uh, feeding regimes um, that are going to be able to get the bird uh, to you know encourage the bird to stay alive and grow. Um, and then you, once the bird gets a bit older, you can know some more. So, um, so yeah, it is difficult. Identifying the species of a little pink thing can be really difficult. And sometimes you just have to depend on big, broad brush stroke IDs. What are the sample products or that you could consider feed in these? Um, if you, as, a, as a generality, Mark, for, for, for some of these youngsters? Well, there, there's a number of commercial companies that make... Uh, excellent hand rearing mixes for seed eating birds, uh, for um, uh, granivores, um, for carnivorous birds, um, for water birds. Um, and that's the, you know, you're sort of looking for a company that has that degree of, uh, of speciality in their hand rearing mix that, um, that you can narrow it down to that sort of group and then start to use those foods to get the bird further along. Excellent. Now, while we're we're jumping straight into feeding, there, uh, how again? We're, it's you know we're talking as you mentioned broad strokes here. How, how often do you feed them, and how much do you feed them? You know, for those those vets who aren't used to dealing with these youngsters, what what's what's some tips or, or things to avoid? It's an excellent question because it is a little bit. It it sort of I was caught out quite a few times when I first started doing this because. As a rough guide, if we're dealing with a, um, you know, a, uh, uh, let's say we're hand rearing some puppies, we might uh, use about 10% of their body weight per day as a volume of milk that we might have to give that, um, that's that mammal. Um, the high metabolic rate of birds and their much faster growth rate means that 10%, a rough guide um, of 10% of their body weight, um, is commonly used per feed for um, for many birds that are hand reared. Um, so it is a much much greater amount of food than probably many small animal veterinarians are used to contemplating. And um, of course, follow the instructions precisely. The companies that make this stuff have done an awful lot of research and and just be guided by their volumes of water to mix with the the powdered preparation um, and uh, and then um, get a bit of, you know, accurate weights, as we've talked about many times before with, uh, with all sorts of animals, making sure that we've got precise weights so that we can uh, make those estimates about volumes to be fed. That's a critical thing as well. I think we need to really stress that point you said there mark about making sure you make up the the powders the feed solutions as directed um, because there's always 
there's a lot of homemade formulas where they add a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of home, you know, tincture of this and tincture of that. And it's very similar to what sometimes happens with the with the mammals, Mark, like the possum yes. milks and the, you know, wombat milks, et cetera, here in Australia, and that people just, they can't help themselves messing around <laughs> with what's already made up of the right osmolarity, et cetera, and they stuff things up, don't they? So, no, don't. There used to be a time when then when there weren't any products available, and so there is has been a culture of, you know, um, this neighbour, my auntie, whoever's done it this way before, and we use these products, um, but that's no longer necessary. The, these companies have done an immense amount of research. It's surprising how much research they've done and, and the products they use, um, uh, um, if used as instructed, um, work immensely well. Now, a quick thing to say about that though, Brendan, is that um, I've had clients come to me and say, oh, look, uh, you know, I'll never use this brand, brand X, yep. because I used it once and it didn't work um, and the bird died. Now, it's hand rearing foods are an easy target and they are virtually never the cause of the bird's demise all the commercially available ones have had um, a huge amount of research gone into them as i said and and if the bird doesn't make it it's almost certainly because um, it was so seriously compromised at the beginning that it did not matter what you were going to do it wasn't going to make it so the hand rearing mix while many people come to us and say, oh, that brand never works, um, it's rarely because it is actually that brand. Great point, Mark. A poor carpenter never blames his tools. Um, a good carpenter never, <laughs> or, or whatever. That's a mix we of know what that one. You know what I've, you know yeah. what I mean. Okay, so we're, we're, <laughs> go, we're going to feed them. We're going to feed them enough and the right amount, Mark. How do we, what's the basics of sort of housing for them? What sort of things do we need to consider for these young birds? Well, the key thing there is um, temperature. You've got to have the facility to keep them warm and stably warm. Um, so we don't want the temperature going up or down rapidly. Um, and we actually need to keep them surprisingly warm, surprisingly warm. Um, so the, the, um, those little pink birds that haven't feathered up yet um, we really need to keep those at 37 or 38 degrees consistently um, and a lot of those birds that haven't feathered pre-feathering uh, birds might need to be fed as frequently as every two hours um, and so an, in, an incubator of some sort that uh, maintains the temperature um, and um, and the facility to maintain the temperature despite the enclosure being open every couple of hours is really, really the starting point to hand rearing these and birds well. There is some fantastic avian specific little hospital humid, you know, um, intensive care sort of cages um, yes. that you can purchase, but you can get away and, and people still use them, Mark. Um, the old. Uh, human hum baby humidity cribs and things like that and variations thereof is what people have used in the past, haven't they? So and while can... I while I you know don't I I sing the praises of not homemade recipes for the the um the feeding, um, I have seen a lot of homemade um, uh, humidity cribs in inverted commas uh, boxes with um, ceramic lamps. Um, that a you know a wooden box with a ceramic lamp will uh, in a sort of separate quarter will provide an excellent uh, 
thermally stable environment. So there are some homemade incubators that uh, do an outstanding job in my experience. Yes, yes. Okay. So what are the common things that go wrong? So can, can we reverse them? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, but we can always reverse them. But of course, uh, your question hints at the fact that if we can prevent them, um, things are much, much more likely to go well for everyone involved. Um, so the, the typical sorts of things that, uh, you know, one of the things that commonly goes wrong um, is aspiration and consequent pneumonia. So we've got a fluid based feed that we're often feeding to these um, animals, particularly in the early stages, if they're a bit dehydrated and weak, we might have to uh, administer that food directly to the crop. We might not have a very strong feeding response in the first instance. Yep. Um, and, and it is um, very easy to, uh, first of all, get the crop needle in the wrong spot um, and administer the uh, the food to the airways, surprisingly easy, but um, it's even easier to get it in the right spot um, and then have the bird regurgitate some of that food. So taking it slow and making sure those temperatures are correct, um, that tends to lessen the likelihood of those things happening. Um, and of course, if you, you know, it's much, the more experience you get, the more uh, you are able to say, you know, to judge that, oh, that bird has uh, a crop that's emptying appropriately and so I can top it up or no, that bird's not emptying out and I shouldn't put any more in because it's more likely to regurgitate and breathe some of that stuff in. So that's the first one. Um, there, it can be a little bit, um, you know, easy, particularly with um, some of the carnivorous birds, if you're um, hand-rearing one of those guys, then, um, you know, it, you do have to watch that you have that calcium to phosphorus ratio accurate in the foods that you're giving the, the, uh, the um, animal. And it might be um, that it's an insectivore and uh, we've got a bunch of mealworms and uh, the bird's happily popping those mealworms away at a, at a, a fair clip, um, but they're they're not of excellent protein value and they're certainly not of excellent calcium to phosphorus ratios um, and there will be growth issues with those birds as a consequence they may end up with uh, metabolic bone disease or um, or they may end up with uh, uh, liver problems if if we don't pay attention to those uh, those diets now Going back one little step there, Mark, you mentioned about crop problems. Um, yeah. What's your first step if if you have a one of these birds that it looks like the crop's full of food because you've put it put it in there, but it's not empty? What's your What's your first step? My first step is to review the temp the thermal environment that the bird is in. The most common reason that uh, birds fail to empty their crop is that. Um, they're not being kept at the right temperature. And so they've definitely, like I've had cases myself where we've set a, an incubator at a particular temperature um, with the dial on the front, um, and then we've just had no end of problems. And then when we've actually whacked a thermometer in there, the temperature inside the incubator is not 
uh, consistent, doesn't correlate with the number that we've set on the thermostat. So mm-hmm. reviewing the temperature is the first thing. Um, and you've got to be a little bit, as a veterinary healthcare professional, whether you're a, a nurse or a veterinarian or a technician, you have to be a little bit tactful because people, in my experience, take this assessment of their level of care, they take it a bit personal, Brendan. If you just blaze in there and go, oh, Mark said it's going to be the temperature and you guys have stuffed the temperature up, um, people can get um, really, really quite upset. So um, being careful in the way that you phrase questions and ask about the management of temperature. So apart from checking that temperature, Mark, what what physically, what do you do with that bird where the crop has not emptied? Once it gets for to the, that for stage, the first time, yeah. You, you, I. It depends a little bit on um, the consistency of the food in there. So some birds that are not emptying their crop will absorb some of the fluid from the food in there, and so you'll end up with a, you know, a little nugget, a, a hardened, um, maybe plasticine consistency lump of food. And so if that was the case, I'd rehydrate that. Um, that food. I'd, I would stop putting food in and I'd just administer fluid. Um, and if the crop continued to, to not empty normally, um, then we would aspirate the contents of the crop. We'd empty it out and give it a chance to um, settle down. The contents that we've aspirated, and um, we'd have a look at to see if there was any evidence of yeast or other pathogens that might be Um, interfering with the normal function of the crop. And it's a little bit difficult to attribute cause, but they'll certainly make things worse if they're not the cause and uh, and treating them is still important. Great points as usual, Mark. Now, you've managed to keep this bird alive. It's grown up a little or a lot. Um, What about imprinting? Excellent question. Releasing and or not? How do we? How do we try? So, so with the wild ones, obviously. Um, oh, with all of them, Brendan. No, you. you oh yeah, with all yeah. of them. Yeah. So with all of them. Yeah. Do you want to paint some? Definitely paint strokes. some eyes. I want to paint, paint some, some eyes. eyes on a yeah. sock. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, so uh, the 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 all those birds, whether they're uh, Avery birds or wild birds, they will be particularly as they get to the latter stages of, um, of, uh, of their rearing, uh, as they approach fledging, they are imprinting on the, the person thing that's feeding them. And that shape, that, um, that uh, um, uh, individual will become the image that they seek in the future as a partner. And so for wild birds, if we want a wild bird to be a successful contributor to the population, we need to make puppets. We need to, you know, if you have a kookaburra, you might have a sock, a white sock that has uh, painted on it the facial appearance of a kookaburra and a long beak, and that puppet will provide the food. And that will make that bird imprint on the shape and appearance of that puppet and look for that type of um, animal in the future to breed with. Now, this imprinting is what many aviculturists take advantage of to make birds familiar with the human form so they can sell them as pets. But unfortunately, it almost invariably ends up leading to a situation where the birds 
behave inappropriately to the humans in their environment, either seeking them out as a sexual partner or attacking them to drive them away from someone they think should be their sexual partner, um, and therefore those behavioural issues that arise as a consequence are a direct result of the imprinting that's occurred during the hand-raising process. And I think that, you know, there's no situation that I can see that justifies uh, taking advantage of that imprinting process to uh, create an artificial pet out of an agricultural bird. What? Here's a good question, I think. What's your approach to the wild ones then that are brought in by somebody who's raised them and they're obviously severely imprinted, Mark? <laughs> oh, God. Um, I, it's, a, it's a good question and it's complicated, of course, because of the overlay of human emotions. Um, so in a purely pragmatic sense, that, that bird that's highly imprinted on humans is unlikely to contribute to that population. So, um, if it if it was a um, you know a, an exceedingly rare species, um, then it's probably not a good thing for that bird to be released into the wild and occupy um, habitat um, resources and not contribute to the the growth of the population in the wild. Yeah. Um, so it probably means that bird's not going to be a release candidate. I think in the real world, while that's an absolutely ideal decision-making process, I think there are situations where you can, um, where you can say, okay, um, we've got this bird, it's imprinted on humans, but we're going to have effectively a soft release. It's going to be released into this person's backyard and we're going to, uh, you know, it'll probably be hand-fed for a significant part of the rest of its life. Now, there are, it's interesting because there are species that seem to revert to wild behaviour and lose that imprinting on humans uh, relatively easily. And the ones that always jump to mind for me are birds like rosellas. Um, who will very quickly revert, you know, the, the coding, the genetic coding for a partner for a rosella um, is highly inherited and doesn't depend a lot on imprinting. And so whatever imprinting occurs can be uh, reverted. But there are other species, um, even other parrots, uh, lorikeets, for example, who may never lose that imprinting on humans. Um, but we're probably not affecting their, you know, the population of wild lorikeets significantly by having a couple of birds who are happy to think that people are going to uh, mate with them and, and, uh, and they ignore the other lorikeets. That's not a problem for the population, I don't think. So there are some species that I'm happy to have released, um, but that has to be made on a case-by-case -case basis, that decision. Yes, as usual it's dealing with the human or humans rather than the bird which is probably the more problematic aspect isn't it because people become so attached to um, an animal that they've that they've raised whether it be a bird or a reptile or a or a mammal mark that um, you're trying to you know wrench out of their arms <laughs> or up the worst which... ones brendan are the the ones where they have you know um we've had ones where 
the birds come in and um, they've been, you know, hand reared for, I don't know, weeks. And yep. I, had, I particularly remember a kookaburra that came in so weak, multiple pathological fractures in its legs um, and uh, had been fed that um, inappropriate diet that led to metabolic bone disease and those pathologic fractures. And obviously on, on grounds of um, just being humane, yeah. um, you have to, you know, that bird's never going to be pain-free and, um, and so you have to talk about humane euthanasia in those sorts of instances. And, and as you said, people have had a baby and they have cared for it for weeks um, and, and oftentimes committed, even if sometimes inappropriately, a huge amount of resources to doing it. And um, yeah, it, it is a, a nuanced and difficult area to, to manage to make sure that the best outcome for the animal happens without upsetting the people too, too much. <sighs> Sounds like a lot of work, Mark, but when you do manage to raise them, it's pretty amazing watching. And one of my um, partners at work, my practice manager, is raising a... Um, a couple of budgies at the moment, Mark, yeah. and it's amazing to watch them grow, isn't it? Um, it it's a it's a delight, isn't it? Um, when, when it really is. It, well. It's certainly gratifying, and but whether it's um, uh, um, captive birds or whether it's um, wild birds, to see them, you know, achieve their their uh, fullness as individuals because of the fact that you've helped them grow and and you were able to hand rear them, it is really gratifying. Um, and it's all the more gratifying when it's done well, Brendan. That's, uh, you know, I know your staff would be going exactly along these lines. And when it is done well, um, oh, it lifts you up. Um, it's it's just trying to make sure that it's done as well as it possibly can be. Yep. And and quickly, um, we we uh, I don't want to dwell on it. And we've made out we've discussed this at length in other contexts. But I always think that. Um, whether in that first instance, um, uh, so a good example would be lots of those uh, doves. Doves breed, they're, a, they're a, um, a type of bird that has lots and lots of offspring uh, with a view that many of them are not going to make it. Um, and so um, if someone doesn't have the resources or time, um, then considering humane euthanasia for those sorts of species at a very early stage is not an inappropriate thing to do and is not consistent is not inconsistent with what would happen in nature for those yep. birds yeah so whether it's uh, the time they come in when they've got pathologic fractures when they first come in if they're uh, severely compromised definitely uh, don't feel pressured into treating them um, unnecessarily um, if if they look like they're not a go, definitely think about um, uh, humane euthanasia. As we've said many times on this podcast, um, humane euthanasia is an entirely appropriate uh, welfare outcome for many individuals. Great point, as usual. Any final comments, Mark, about raising these birds? I mean, we've only touched on a very, very small <laughs> amount of it, but a bit of an overview of, of raising these youngsters. Um, the only other quick thing I was going to mention um, was sticking them back in the bucket thing. Have you done this, Brendan? Um, an ice cream container or a yogurt 
bucket. If if someone does come in with a, um, a, you know, birds that have been dropped out of a nest and the, the uh, nest is up the tree a ways, um, a little artificial nest uh, made in a plastic bucket with holes in it so that if it rains, the water drains out. Um, setting the birds up with a couple of cable ties or tying the bucket to the tree, maybe not as high as the original nest. We don't want people climbing up and causing occupational health and safety hazards up ladders. Um, but it's surprising how many parent birds will continue to look after the baby birds in that artificial nest. And so um, maybe even don't take on the hand-rearing job. Leave that to the parents by uh, putting the birds back in a nest nearby the nest they've fallen out of. Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing the next bird you raise, Mark, um, fly <laughs> off into the into the wild blue yonder. And uh, you have been posting some amazing photos up there, up north of um, the tropical bird life, and um, they are pretty spectacular, the colour colours of a lot of them, aren't they? I've been particularly, the, you know I've been wrapped in those palm cockatoos, and it's fascinating to me the colour, even just the colour of the cheek patches compared to a lot of the captive palm cockatoos I've seen. These birds up here in the wild just have the most intense cheek patches. So, so yeah, they have been a pleasure, Brendan. Well, let's get out of here, Mark, and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time